Hi, good evening, everybody. Uh, just before we start, um, you'll find a survey on your seats. Uh, if you feel like f filling that out, it's really helpful to the people who organise the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series. Okay, so my name is Kimberly Knight, and on behalf of the ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, I'd like to welcome you to this Sydney Ideas Lecture. Before we be begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So this evening, it's my great pleasure to introduce Caroline Larrington, who is Professor of Medieval European Literature and Fellow and Tutor at St. John's College, University of Oxford. Caroline's research interests, as many of you will know, range widely. She primarily works on Old Norse Icelandic and Arthurian literature, but has published on medieval women, mythology, and on the reception of medieval culture in modern writing. Now, Caroline is currently Distinguished International Visiting Fellow at the Center for the History of Emotions and is in the middle of what I think we can describe as a whirlwind lecture tour. Um, and we're fortunate that she's been able to incorporate a stop-off in Sydney as part of this. Um, Caroline's current research priorities um, are focused on emotion, um, especially in medieval secular literature, and also on the creative remediation of traditional folklore material concerned with fairies. Most recently, she's been writing on medievalism and folklore, and in 2015, she published The Land of the Green Man on British folklore. Uh, later that year, a British uh, BBC Radio 4 series on the book was, was broadcast. And in the same year, which was, must have been incredibly busy, uh, what we're all here to hear more about tonight, Caroline published Winter is Coming, the medieval world of Game, and Th of Game of Thrones, exploring the historical inspiration behind this fantasy phenomenon. So this book's been met with great appreciation uh, from scholars and Game of Thrones enthusiasts alike. Um, and one Amazon uh, reviewer describes it as a journey into um, seven kingdoms with, with a scholarly guide leading the way and stopping at distinct interesting points, revealing parallels and examining possible inspirations between the known world and our own lines of history and legends, songs and tales of yore. To read further, uh, Amazon reviews would take the rest of this hour, so I'm not <laughs> going to do that. But um, so with further ado, I'd just like to welcome Caroline and thank her for coming to tell us about Game of Thrones and how it might end. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Kimberly, and thank you all for coming along this evening to to hear me talk about Game of Thrones. I'm absolutely delighted to be back here in Sydney for only the, the second time in my life. And of course, the real reason I'm here is to talk about Old Norse emotions at a study day tomorrow. And I've been working quite hard to persuade journalists here that I'm not on a book tour. I'm actually here to do some proper work. But nevertheless, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk about one of my enthusiasms, which is Game of Thrones. And people have asked me why I wrote this book on the parallels between A Song of Ice and Fire 
and Game of Thrones and real world and imagined societies. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to refer to the whole thing as Game of Thrones, even though at times I'm talking about the book as well. Why did I decide to do this? Well, the simple answer is that my editor at IB Taurus talked me into it. But he did that because we'd had lots of discussions about medievalism in Game of Thrones. And I was a very keen fan of the show. I started watching it on a plane going to New York in 2012. And I watched three episodes back to back from the first series. And it was the depiction of the North, the particular, particularly the depiction of the wall, which made me think by the end of those three hours, I can't wait to see the rest of this. And I'm very glad that I did write this book because it's led to some interesting opportunities, not least um, being interviewed on the radio this morning and standing here this evening. Um, and I hope that it, having written the book has made some people just a little bit more curious to find out about real medieval history and literature. Well, I want to stress that I don't know whether our friend George Martin here has read any or all of the parallel sources that I talk about in the book. I'd quite like to know if he has. Um, we sent him a couple of copies of the book, but he hasn't um, sent a nice thank you note, so we don't know. Um, but in a way, it doesn't matter so much to me what his sources were, because one of the things that really attracted me both to the books and to the show is that Martin was a history minor when he studied at college. His major was journalism, but his minor was history. And I think you can really tell that he has quite a profound structural understanding of how different medieval societies worked or didn't work. And he's done some pretty eclectic reading and has done some quite clever and imaginative synthesizing of everything that he's encountered. Not the least of these is this book series by the French author Maurice Drouin, Les Rois Maudits. And I've been working recently on an article about what Martin owes to Les Rois Maudits, or the Accursed Kings. Um, this is a series of seven novels, um, the same number as arguably, maybe, in The Song of Ice and Fire, which were written by Maurice Drouin in the 50s. Only six of them were, and then the seventh was an afterthought, um, which he published in 1977. In some ways, a slightly unfortunate afterthought. It didn't have such great reviews. But it's the story of 14th century French history with some imaginative recreations of stories and some elaboration in them. And if you read these novels, you find quite a lot of rather familiar material. Um, in particular, you find that the Templars, who figure quite largely at the beginning of the book, have a rather similar outlook to the religion of the Red God. And there are various other things which you notice as having inspired Martin, but he's worked them through so thoroughly in his own imagination that you wouldn't say he has stolen this from Drouin, but simply that he has picked up 14th century French history and English history as well and reworked it in some ways. And it's interesting that Martin is prone to saying that his inspiration was the 15th century Wars of the Roses. I think this is a bit of a red herring to persuade people to look there and not so much to look at the French material. Well, 
I'm not going to go into enormous detail about the medieval parallels to every single thing that we find in Game of Thrones, because if you want to know all about that, obviously, you can read the book. Um, but I will be pointing some of them out in passing. But I do want to talk a bit this evening about medievalism as a phenomenon and to point out that in the extraordinary world-building enterprise of Martin's world, there are successes and failures. And the successes, I think, include the richly detailed world of King's Landing, which is very much an adaptation of late medieval England, and here are our friends Varys and Tyrion on the battlements there of King's Landing looking down at the um, Blackwater Bay. Now, it is like late medieval England in terms of having a monarchy and in terms of having a rather interesting relationship between the religious establishment and the crown, but it also has some remarkable differences from late medieval England. Where is the civil service? Who is actually writing the documents which allow the inhabitant or the, the holder of the Iron Throne to rule the kingdom effectively? Is it Grand Maester Picel? I'm not so sure he can do this single-handedly. So where is the bureaucracy which was present in 14th and 15th century England? Where are the lawyers? This is a question that um, lawyers have often raised with me about this series. Um, Tyrion didn't have the benefit of any kind of legal representation when he was on trial, but in 14th, 15th century England, there would have been plenty of lawyers at the court. And the other staple of historiography of the late medieval period, where are the rising middle classes? Absent. All we have are the aristocracy and the poor souls who live in flea bottom and riot in the streets from time to time. So there are some gaps in the way that Martin constructs the, the world that we find in the south of Westeros. Up here in Winterfell, this is an artist's impression, um, we have a historically earlier society. It's a heroic and a military one, and it's very much more akin to Anglo-Saxon England than it is to the chronological period that we find in the South. The military culture is centered on a lord who has sworn retainers, who are his thanes in Anglo-Saxon terms. And these are people he has to call up for war on the basis of the oaths that they've sworn to him. And that's how he gets to put fighting forces in the field. And you'll remember how many times in the show things have been held up because the Warden of Winterfell or whoever is in charge in the North has to negotiate with his bannermen. And that's quite an obstacle for whoever hopes to wield authority in the North. Down in the West, the Lannisters have an enormous standing army. Um, apparently almost 60,000 people they can put in the field for the Battle of Oxcross um, under Jamie's command, and there's another 30,000 under Tywin's command. Now, this is a huge number of men to have in a standing army, and something which was endemic in late 15th century England was exactly great noblemen retaining soldiers on their own account, retained men or maintained men as they were called, and being able to put them in the field at a moment's notice. Um, this was one of the reasons why the Wars of the Roses 
were such an intense civil war involving all sorts of different factions because there were different military powers involved. But it also explains, I think, why the Lannisters are running a bit short of gold. It costs a lot of money to have that many uh, men in the field. And other societies which I think are well thought through are actually one of my favourites, the Ironborn, who are, as you can see here, um, and I'm afraid, again, that's an artist's impression, um, because it's quite hard to find pictures from the show showing characters and ships at the same time, because the CGI for the ships, I think, is quite expensive. So the Ironborn are parallel to the Vikings in all sorts of ways, but they're rather more narrowly drawn. Um, they're a, a society which lives by raiding, slaving, I suppose fishing. I'm not entirely sure what they do for food. And there's obviously a modicum of trade as well, but I think the trade is mostly the slave trade. And in the last season, you may remember that Yara has promised Daenerys that there'll be no more, quote, reaving, roving, raiding, or raping. Um, I'm a bit concerned about how the Iron Islanders are going to make a living from here on in if they're going to give up this kind of thing. It doesn't look like a country where they're going to be able to practice a great deal of agriculture. Um, so maybe the fishing industry is going to have a big upturn or they're going to turn the Iron Fleet into a merchant navy. But I'm a bit concerned about how they're going to make a decent living. The Dothraki are modelled very much on the Mongols of Genghis Khan and his descendants, and they are quite well observed. Though one of the things that's always struck me about the way in which the Dothraki are portrayed, and indeed about the societies of Essos in general, is that we always see them from the perspective of an outsider. We always have a Westerosi commentator like Jorah Mormont or Daenerys herself. And I'll be coming back to the Orientalist facets of Martin's particular vision in a moment. But I just want to note that here. And here we have one of my all-time favorite enterprises, the Iron Bank of Bravos. Um, I wrote an article about this for the 1843 website. Um, the 1843 is the website for the Economist newspaper. And I hope it doesn't sound too boastful if I tell you that 350,000 people read this article, which is more people than have ever read anything. Everything I've ever written in my entire life put together will come to about 3,000 people. Um, and because I was talking about the economy of Game of Thrones and the fiscal policies that Cersei was carrying out. Um, as you can see, they didn't pan out so well for her in the last season. Um, that's an article which, if you're interested in the economics of Game of Thrones, you can chase up on the website. And as well as the history, I also want to tip my hat to the dragons and to the White Walkers, the others. Um, the dragons I'm particularly interested in because they concretize some of the problems that many other fantasy series don't necessarily deal with in much detail. In effect, how to tame your dragon. How do you control them? How do you feed them? How do you effectively deploy them in a military combat? And we saw in the, the last episode of the last season that Daenerys seems to have cracked 
commanding three dragons from the back of one. Again, I'm not sure this is going to work out quite so well when she gets them to Westeros, particularly if they get distracted by the sheep and other things that they can eat there. But we'll see about that. And the White Walkers themselves embody a kind of existential winter terror that really grips the imagination. They frighten the hell out of me. What do they want? What can appease them? How can they make them go away? Can the dragons possibly be enough to deal with the White Walkers? I've come across some interesting fan theories about how that's going to be settled, and we might talk about those later on. So those are, for me, the successes in Martin and uh, Benioff and Weiss's vision. But there are also, I think, some failures. Um, and in particular, I think there are places where Martin's imagination runs out slightly. There's a bit of a tendency when he's multiplying all those kingdoms in Essos to say, here we have some people who worship a goat, and they sacrifice goats to them every day, and they live in the north, and it's very cold, which isn't really a lot of information to go on, I think, about the people of Kohor. But over around Slaver's Bay and in the city of Carth, we have the kind of Orientalism that the literary critic Edward Said talked about, a kind of racial stereotyping in which the people of Essos, particularly those that Daenerys encounters, are inscrutable, wily, untrustworthy, childlike in their passions and attachments. And just looking at these people here, we've got the very strange warlocks of Carth with their nightshade-stained lips. We've got the shadow city of Ashai, which is where Melisandre comes from, and I think we can see why she's decided to travel over to the other end of the world, living in a, a gray and rather gloomy place like this with strange misshapen fish in the river. And we have the sons of the harpy, harpies as representatives of a kind of popular insurrection in Slaver's Bay. In Yunkai, we have the bed slaves of Yunkai who are highly sexualized, and they can initiate you, if you pay enough, into the way of the seven sighs and the 16 seats of pleasure. I can't say any more about that. Um, the Astapori creations, the eunuch army of the unsullied, are an interesting phenomenon. Um, they're as well-drilled and obedient as any group of Spartans. But if there's one message I'd like everyone to take away tonight, it is if you're going to build an army of your own for your own purpose as um, employing as mercenaries, do not castrate your soldiers at the age of five. They would all have squeaky voices and they would have no muscle tone whatsoever. So forget about an army of eunuchs unless you're going to operate on them a bit later in life. And again, talking about the more disturbing side of the series, we might think about these scenes of the brown-skinned, newly liberated Yunkai greeting Daenerys here as Misa, mother, in the episode of that name towards the end. In fact, the, the final episode of season two. And it's interesting that very few of the people of Essos actually get a point of view chapter in the books, one that places their consciousness at the center of the narrative. And at this point, traditionally, I stop and ask the audience if anybody knows who the SOC characters are who have a point of view chapter. Any, any volunteers? 
Melisandre gets one chapter um, where she's looking into the fire and she sees the three-eyed raven or crow and she's trying to figure out what he means in terms of her interpretation of the prophecies. And this guy, do we know who this guy is? Yeah, and he's dead. And in fact, Ariahota, who was the captain of the, the guard of the Martels over there in Dawn, trained with the bearded priests of Norvos and came to Dawn as a warrior and as a famous fighter. And what interesting insights does Ariahota have to tell us from the SOC perspective about the people of Dawn? He tells us they have really spicy food. And that is about it. And we're never going to find out any more about what Ariahota thinks, at least in the show, because he was executed at the beginning of the last series. Why, though, to return to what I said I would talk about at the beginning of this, has Game of Thrones had so much success? Sure, there is a steady fan base from the books across to the show, but at the same time, it hasn't become the most illegally downloaded or streamed show of all time just on the back of the book readers. And I myself had never heard of the books before I started watching the program. So why has it been so successful? And here is uh, my little list of why I think this is the case. And the first is, I think that the medieval world is already a familiar other to people of the modern day. It's what our current world was born from, and we owe to it institutions like, to take some at random, romantic love, universities, book printing, the centralization of the European nation state, and I'm sure you can provide other phenomena for yourselves. And the medievalism of the late 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries has created a very powerful modern understanding and imagining of two particular kinds of medieval other worlds. And one of these is the highly familiar romantic chivalric dream of knights and ladies, of castles and minstrels, in the old songs about John Quill and her nightfall Florian that bewitched Sansa, and is what makes her believe herself to be in love with Joffrey, and that didn't pan out terribly well. And this is Sansa's first glimpse of chivalry as a phenomenon. Remember, she's a northern girl at heart when she sees the tourney of the hand, which is what's pictured here. The splendor of it all took Sansa's breath away. The shining armor, the great chargers caparisoned in silver and gold, the shouts of the crowd, the banners snapping in the wind, and the knights themselves, the knights most of all. It's better than the song she breathed. Now, a more pragmatic and more critical view of chivalry is robustly offered by the hound. This is what he has to say. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the lady's favours, they're silk ribbons tied around the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. Well, bugger your ribbons and shove your swords up your asses. That, I'm afraid, is the hound for you. So it's interesting then, and it's something I want to think a bit more about, that both Martin and the show are anxious to debunk the popular myth of chivalry, and they don't seek to replace it with a more nuanced account of it. 
Chivalry, courtliness is a behaviour that the power players employ in the show to get ahead, and we don't see any of its positives, the ways in which courtliness can discipline and constrain the aggression that's innate in a warrior culture. And the second type of medieval other has gained traction through series like The Vikings or last year's BBC production, The Last Kingdom, which I think has been shown here as well. These are reimaginings of a heroic, brutal warrior society where masculinity, honor, fighting skill, courage are to the fore, and where women tend to be rather sidelined. As long as there are a few feisty women on the periphery, the narrative can focus on the figures of Uhtred and Alfred here. This is King Alfred, obviously, with the crown, as you would have guessed. And fourth along the rather handsome young man with the beard is Uhtred, who's half Dane, um, half Anglo-Saxon. And there's a lot of male bonding going on between them. But this show also looks at real questions about early medieval military strategy, about coexistence, religious conversion, and ways of king choosing. And the set-piece battles are pretty well done, so I do recommend The Last Kingdom. And there is a clear public taste, I think, here for a more violent kind of Middle Ages. And then secondly, I think we have to acknowledge the role of J.R.R. Tolkien in broadening medievalism out precisely into fantasy. And in his important Rolling Stone magazine interview of 2014, uh, Martin critiques Tolkien more than once, though of course he has to pay respect to him as his forerunner in the field. And this is what um, Martin has to say. Ruling is hard. This was maybe my answer to Tolkien, whom, much as I admire him, I do quibble with. Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at real history and it's not that simple. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for a hundred years and he was wise and good. But Tolkien doesn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? And what about all those orcs? Now, what about all those orcs? That's not a question that I want to try and answer here. But as soon as I came across the phrase, what was Aragorn's tax policy, I thought that absolutely encapsulates the difference between Tolkien and Martin. That Martin thinks about how you rule. Tolkien thinks about the mythology of kingship. He thinks about the ways in which languages underpin different kinds of imaginative organization, different kinds of mythologies, but he's really not interested in tax policy. And thirdly, Game of Thrones has been successful in showing the complexities of medieval societies. In particular, the various struggles for power, not just between individuals, but between institutions. And one particular focus has been the struggle between a revived, enthusiastic form of popular religion and the crown in King's Landing. And these reflect in some ways the tensions between the church and the state right across medieval Europe, exemplified by Thomas Becket and Henry II, for example. And they manifested themselves in debates about the jurisdiction of ecclesiastical and civil courts, and of course the rise of various popular religious movements like the Children's Crusade. Now, the combination of these themes 
was depicted, depicted in Clash of Kings and was also the climax of last season's King's Landing storyline. In the show, and I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler, the sparrows seem to have been killed off. But in the books, the political and ethical clash is mined much more deeply here. And there's a stronger sense of the movement being rooted in people all across the Seven Kingdoms. It's not just an urban phenomenon. Then, too, we have Peter Baelish as Littlefinger, as someone who really understands the medieval politics of power. He's risen from being the foster brother of the Tully sisters, always a rather poor relation, to being master of the King's Coin, Lord of Harren Hall, protector of the Vale, via a career which in the book, I argue, isn't that dissimilar to Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that Lord Littlefinger is writing a great deal of poetry in his spare time, though I'd like to think actually that he is, but I suspect somehow he hasn't got a Canterbury Tales up his sleeve. Um, but nevertheless, his rise to power has been in some ways a little bit like Chaucer's, and again, for an argument about that, you can look in the book. And his understanding, I think, is reflected very much by this discussion he has with Farris. Farris, who we can characterize, I think, as an agent for order, someone who's trying all the time to make things better in the world of Game of Thrones, while Littlefinger thrives on creating chaos. And this is what he says. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail and never get to try again. The fall breaks them. And some are given the chance to climb. They cling to the realm or to the gods or love. But only the ladder is real. The climb is all there is. And I'm really interested to see how Varys' storyline is going to be developing in the next season. And fourthly, and finally, as far as medievalism is concerned, is, I think, one of the prime factors which has contributed to the success of the show is the fact that characters don't, as in Tolkien, belong to team good or team evil. The morality of the show and of the books is supple and complex. So we've seen how Jamie's thoroughly unlikable character, the man who pushes Bran from the tower, has changed and grown over the years, particularly in his relationship with Brienne. And we can see him looking particularly soulful, I think, here, as he says goodbye to her in the last season. And we've seen how Tyrion has developed from a smart, lustful dwarf into a thinker with real talent for statesmanship. And even, and I realize I'm pushing it a little bit here, even Ramsay Bolton needs to be understood against the way his father treated his mother and the insecurity that being a bastard has instilled in him. Though I have to say, I'm not sorry he ended like he did. And Martin himself has asserted that redemption is one of the themes that he's most interested in. And this is what he says in that same Rolling Stone interview. One of the things I wanted to explore with Jamie and with so many of the characters is the whole issue of redemption. When can we be redeemed? Is redemption even possible? I don't have an answer. But when do we forgive people? I want there to be a possibility of redemption for us because we all do terrible things. We should be able to be forgiven because if there is no possibility for redemption, what's the answer then? And redemption is, of course, one of the biggest stories, one of the biggest themes in medieval thinking. It's a story which is important for every Christian soul. 
And while individual redemption is at the heart of the show's thinking, collective social redemption, institutionalized by religion, comes under constant pressure in the show. The adherents of the faith are either corrupt or lazy, or fanatical and terrifying. And as Tyrion comments, give me priests that are fat and corrupt and cynical, the sort who like to sit on soft satin cushions, nibble sweetmeats, and diddle little boys. It's the ones who believe who make all the trouble. And I think that's broadly true, at least looking at the last season. And also important, I think, is the fact that religion and learning have become divorced in the world of the show and the books. This has very much neutralized the power of the faith. The maesters have the monopoly of learning and literacy, and they have a true grasp of history. Uh, but that isn't the province of the faith, because the maesters can belong to any faith or none. And that very close connection between learning and the church, which was crucial in medieval Europe, is broken in the show. The maesters' monopoly of learning is potentially quite a dangerous one, I think. And it's arguable that this is one of the reasons why Westeros hasn't undergone an industrial revolution. Um, though there are lots of other reasons why that hasn't happened, I'm sure. And here are two final points that I want to make. Um, people keep asking me about the depiction of women in Game of Thrones. And the question of female characters has been very much debated. But sometimes I wonder what assumptions underlie it. Because nobody asks the same questions about the male characters in the show, because we assume you can have all kinds of men inhabiting a fantasy world. But somehow, the women ought to be depicted in particular ways. But you can find counterparts for almost all the women in the show in medieval history and in imaginative literature, from female knights and warrior women to priestesses to queens. And Martin, I think, is very astute at spotting the particular challenges and difficulties they face. So for example, when can you choose whom you marry? Cersei is both queen and widow, and yet she has to yield to her father's plan for her to marry Loras, which was never a good idea. It's probably just as well it didn't come off. How could you travel those dangerous roads as a girl alone? You couldn't. You had to dress as a boy. It's the only way to keep safe. Does chivalry really promote putting women on a pedestal? And we've seen how the show really views chivalry. The sexual violence, particularly, I think, when Sansa is raped on her wedding night, is pretty graphic. But many noble women would have experienced something similar when they got married, especially if they knew very little about sex or if they were marrying somebody they had no particular desire to marry. Rape was very frequent in times of war, particularly for lower-class women. But that said, it's important to note the medieval West was concerned about sexual violence, and it wasn't condoned, and rape was a punishable offense in civil society. But Martin himself says, and perhaps this is to, in some ways, justify the ways in which it's depicted in the books, though perhaps not the sensationalizing of the show, Martin says, rape and sexual violence have been part of every war ever fought, from the ancient Sumerians to our present day. To omit them from a narrative centered on war and power would have been fundamentally false and dishonest, and would have undermined one of the themes of the books, that the true horrors of human history derive not from orcs and dark lords, but from ourselves. And I think he probably has a point there. We notice there's another slight dig at Tolkien. 
Also, as far as the show is concerned, the transmedia nature of the Game of Thrones phenomenon means that the showrunners, Benioff and Weiss, are able to respond to fan concerns and to modify their material accordingly. And so I think particularly in the last season, they've scaled down the nudity and the sexual violence quite markedly. And by the end of season six, the show has established a spectrum of rather powerful women. We have Daenerys, of course, now newly in alliance with Yara. We have Sansa, with a, a power broker in the north. And we have Cersei in an increasingly problematic but interesting position. All of these will be playing major roles in the end game. So, how will it all end? Well, in the epilogue to the book, I discuss a range of possibilities, both for Martin and for Benioff and Weiss. And where the show is increasingly going, I believe, is towards something like what Tolkien called the U-catastrophe, the happy ending, the kind of thing where Aragorn rules for 100 years and is wise and good. Or in our context, when John and Daenerys marry and have lots of little Targaryen babies, slightly inbred Targaryen babies, because they are probably aunt and nephew, but then that's been a Targaryen tradition, so that's probably all right. The Iron Throne is secured, and everyone, at least in the aristocracy in King's Landing, will live happily ever after. Not the poor souls in Slaver's Bay, though, where I think Daenerys' intervention and reforms can't possibly hold under the pressure of regional superpowers like Volantis. And there are, of course, still major fiscal issues to be resolved around the bankruptcy of the crown, but that's one for the, the economist readership. At a Game of Thrones symposium that I went to in Poland in May, some of us were given the task for defending for two minutes the claim of different candidates for the Iron Throne. And I got... Where is he? Gendry! Still gamely out there rowing his boat across the narrow sea. Um, though I understand he has been spotted in Belfast recently, and so he does have a role, I think, in the coming season. Um, my pitch was that Gendry would return to King's Landing to lead a people's revolution, that he would overthrow the discredited institution of the monarchy and establish a parliamentary democracy. Though somehow, I kind of think Lord Baelish would end up as Prime Minister in this model, whatever happened. I have to say, in the vote that followed, my vision did not command support. But as the cultural critic Frederick Jameson remarked in 2003, Quote, as someone once said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Real social reform in the known world isn't going to happen, I don't think. So Martin might just be looking forward to a cosmic battle. And here we go, back here. A cosmic battle between the forces of ice and fire in which everything goes smash, where we have a world-shattering apocalypse. The White Walkers face up to the dragons. The Iron Throne is smelted down for its Valyrian sword content. Mm. Um, Jon Snow becomes the new Night's King. Destruction on a scale which would match the fall of Valyria. All of that would have a wonderful logic and would certainly dodge accusations of a simplistic feel-good ending. 
But I'm not sure that I quite want to see the known world, that magnificent story world-building achievement that Martin and Benioff and Weiss have brought about. I don't want to see that go up in a puff of CGI special effects. And I don't think Martin will permit that any more than Tolkien would have let his legendarium, as he called his Middle-earth story world, perish in the flames of Mount Doom. But all men must die, and that is what I'm calling my second book on the TV show, which has just been commissioned. And by the time that comes out, we will know how it all ends. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Caroline. Um, Caroline's generously agreed to take questions, um, so I'll just open the floor. Or not? Yes. You spoke, I think, very correctly. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you spoke about how we almost always only see the SOC characters through the eyes of Westerosis mm. um, and the impact that that has on our understanding of their cultures. The even um, more extreme example of that would be the White Walkers, whom we don't know anything about except through people who are running away from them. Mm. We don't know a word of their language. Um, just recently in the show we've seen depictions we've, of... We've got an origin myth for them now. Yeah. yeah, but again, not a word of their language. We don't know what they're out for. Um, given, the, uh, given the author's criticism of simple black hat bad guys that you get in Tolkien, and given your understanding of medieval literature... Do you think it's likely that the White Walkers are going to be a simple bad guy, bad guy, evil force that has to be conquered? Or are these a force that has to be integrated into a new world that is going to come afterwards? Well, I think these are going to go differently in the show and the books. I think the show is now paring down its storyline so much that it hasn't got time to dedicate a couple of episodes to exploring the point of view of the White Walkers. So I think they're all going to get blown up, basically, in the show, one way or another. Um, but I think in the books that Martin is looking at something more interesting there. And I wouldn't be surprised if the origin myth that the children of the forest created the White Walkers and kind of created a sort of Frankenstein's monster by so doing. I wouldn't be surprised if Martin doesn't want to take that a bit further and demonstrate that they have got reason, they have got something that they want, whatever it is, and that they could be negotiated with if you can find the language in which to negotiate. Apparently they, they speak a language called scroth, but uh, we haven't heard anybody speaking scroth in the show, so who knows who's, who can communicate with them. But I think that there probably is some kind of accommodation that Martin wants to reach, so they're not just bad hat guys, and they're not just the kind of symbolization of, of climate change. I think there probably is going to be something more interesting going on. Do you have any particular favorite fan theories that you think are, they've, they've got right that you think are probably going to happen or ones that just were interesting anyway? Well, I'm quite interested in the suggestion that the Knight's King is going to be retired and that John Stark will end up as the leader of the White Walkers. 
because in the books, in the kind of deep backstory of the books, there's a suggestion that the original Night's King was a Stark, one of the, the Black Watch who kind of got into magic and weird things happened to him, clearly, uh, which doesn't have much to do with the origin story got in the show. So I could see uh, an argument for when Daenerys, John, and somebody else riding one of the other dragons goes up against the White Walkers, that part of the deal there could be John doesn't get to sit on the Iron Throne, but he gets to become the new, friendlier version of the Night's King. And they all go back up to the north and, um, I don't know, whittle things out of ice or something. But they become more, you know, and, and build up a nice economy of ice-based commodities they can sell. I don't know. I, I haven't really thought that bit. So, like in Monsters, Inc., where they all just start, you know, they go into comedy instead of scaring yeah, that could work, couldn't it? Yeah, kind of a capella group. I mean, who knows? But um, I could see the... the Because uh, Martin's always talking about having a bittersweet ending. And I don't think John and Daenerys get married and live happily ever after is bitter. Um, I think it's too sweet for Martin. And so I, I suspect some big sacrifice might be called for. And I think John, who after all has died before and is kind of you know, not that bothered about being alive, it seems, at least that's what he said before the Battle of the Bastards, um, he might very well be happy to save the Seven Kingdoms by going off and becoming a blue-eyed ice demon. It's a theory, anyway. <clears throat> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> so, given that the religion of the Andals, the sort of seven gods that are all sort of ideas that are kind of one is sort of complicated but seems to be kind of agnostic within the world of the book in the sense that you don't really see much concrete evidence of them existing compared to like the red god who seems to have quite a bit of magical influence do you mm. think that it'll be able to stand up to presumably the increase of the red god's power in this sort of world-ending cataclysm like how do you think the church will survive in game of thrones that's a very good question um I mean, I guess the medieval model would be now all the sparrows have been blown up, that the faith returns to kind of status quo of just not really being very important in the Society of King's Landing. And I've always been struck by the way that nobody ever bothers to go to mass as they would in a medieval society. Nobody bothers to go to church services. There's no place for the high septon on the small council. There's a great divide between church and state there, which is very different from the medieval world. But I also think that it's interesting that although Martin doesn't really seem to want to endorse one religion as the true religion, that there are all kinds of doubts about the religion of the red god, um, nevertheless, that's the one that keeps resurrecting people. And that seems to, well, in the books, it's resurrected a couple of people. In the show, it's resurrected, resurrected a couple of slightly different people. Um, but that does seem to have a kind of metaphysical power that the other religions don't have. Um, and I think, I suspect that tied up with these prophecies about Azor Ahai and the prince that was promised, that there could be some kind of um, metaphysical solution coming in Martin's world. I don't think they're that interested in the prince that was promised in the show. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but can I predict it? No, I'm not sure, but it's a really interesting point. 
But don't you think um, when Daenerys says, I mean, she'll never have children until, you know, you know, the sun rises in the opposite place, that that, is that a red herring or is that another little thing, mystical thing that's going to, you know, show how it's all going to end? I think... She was cursed, remember, when she was... Yeah, by Mizzy, Miri Mazdur, wasn't she? Um, I think, well, in the books already, there's a suggestion that that curse is beginning to unpick itself when she's standing in the middle of the Dothraki Sea, going, hmm, what do I do now? Um, so I think, I think she's going to turn out to be able to, to bear children all right. Um, but I think that it's probably going to be after some kind of cosmic battle in which... It has looked as if the sun has risen in the west and, and sunk in the east and the mountains, or at least a mountain, blows away like dust. So I, th I think there's going to be a kind of nominal fulfilment of that prophecy. And then she's going to become fertile and have lots of kids. Um, this, is, this is mainly a question about the narrative strategies of the film, uh, of the TV show, as opposed to the, the novels. Mm -hmm. um, in the TV show, it's always seemed to me that, to begin with at least, Tyrion was sort of our entry point into understanding this kind of medievalist mm. world. Although, as the narratives progress, it seems as if he's almost been uh, how it, sucked in to a kind of medievalist worldview, right? To a medieval worldview, in that he's started to murder people that he's closely related to, and he's started to do all kinds of other things that modern men typically eschew. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how is, do you see this as being because um, a, a kind of an undermining of, of those sort of more modern qualities in Tyrion is just part of his, his kind of character development? Or do you think that the show and, and, the, and the books have become so popular that our global understanding of these medieval principles is now taken for granted? And does that suggest something about the future of medieval studies and medievalism studies? <laughs> That's a huge question. Um, I think you're right that Tyrion was a kind of entry point, but I also think that there's... There's some red herring sewing going on here that you also might think that Bran, it, there's going to, it's going to be kind of Bildungsroman about how Bran grows up and then she falls out of the window and you think, well, he's not going to be the hero, at least in, in the way that we would understand it. Um, so I think both the show and the books have been playing a lot with our generic expectations that this is going to be the person that we follow through the story. Um, I think also there's Martin's kind of avowed enthusiasm for shocking people every now and again. So yeah, Ned Stark, the Red Wedding, and then Tywin getting killed by Tyrion, and Strangling Shay as well, which was, um, seemed in some ways to be out of character, but you can see how he was sort of provoked to it in some ways. Um, so I think that has to do more with a kind of more psychological investigation of what has made Tyrion the person that he is. And that comes down to kind of real sort of Oedipal understanding of hostility towards his father and these, to the troubled relation with his siblings. I also think that sibling relations have really come to the fore in the last series, and that's been a kind of interesting development. Um, but I think also, and this is something I'm going to be talking about next time I'm back in Sydney in December, is how the show in particular puts on display strange and difficult emotions and calls them medieval emotions and says this is how people in the past used to feel and they're not quite like us and then undermines it in different ways by introducing more modern kinds of psychological motivation or different kinds of, of um, 
critiquing of the, that kind of medieval perspective. And so I think you're right that future medievalist fantasy is always going to have to take this into account and is always going to be thinking about what do medieval people probably feel and what does an acceptable form of that look like for a modern audience. I think you've sort of covered in that answer a mm. bit. I was going to say, what about close the door um, <laughs> with Bran and what, you know, this whole, do you call it mythical, you know, the religion part of it? And I find, I, I keep on, Bran, I want to, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? <laughs> you know, in the show, but, it, and it's come back right at the end. But I, I mean, you're saying you think that's a not, as big an element as I'm, I'm feeling it is myself. <laughs> well, I think, I think in the show, the, the thinking going on around the supernatural creatures is less complex than Martin's thinking about the, the White Walkers, the, you know, the others as he calls them, and about the dragons as well to some extent, and the dragons having this very long history, and um, both in Valyria and then in, in Westerosi history as well. Um, and I think also that we saw the three-eyed raven crow raven getting wiped out rather promptly at the beginning of the last season. And I'm not sure that that's what Martin has in mind in the books. He's still alive in the books, as far as we know. And I think Martin probably has got the more complex master-disciple um, paradigm in mind for Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven, because I think he was actually rather wasted in, in the show. Um, so I think that, that Bran is going to grow more into that role and be properly trained in the books, whereas at the moment, uh, he's the only person who knows Jon Snow's parentage, and he's got a mile to crawl to the wall. And then if he ever gets over the wall, he's somehow got to tell the whole of Westeros about Jon really being... Um, the child of uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna. And I just don't quite see how he's going to do that without having a whole lot of ravens at his disposal. So I think that's, that's going to be one of the tricky things to sort out in the next season. But I think there's, there's more to go with him in the books. Um, so thinking of the, so the two Stark um, who are now in power in Winterfell, we have Sansa and Jon... And they're sort of the two kind of portrayals of their views towards honour and chivalry and, and all of that sort of stuff. You read Sansa's portrayal and it's very negative. Like her attitude is seen as being very stupid and childish. Mm. Whereas John's unswerving dedication to honour and loyalty is portrayed as a very good thing. And I'm, I'm interested in seeing the sort of the gender roles of those where the, the girl is viewed as silly for believing in it and the man is viewed as being a very honourable and, and worth... Like, is that, um, would you say, reflective of the medieval attitudes of the time? Or is it a more modern construction? I think it's more modern. Um, and I think it's... What Sansa is indirectly criticised for is not really a belief in honour and faith and keeping your word and all those things that John is invested in. It's the kind of flummery of chivalry. It's the knights and the, and the jousting and the songs and all the kind of 
paraphernalia of romantic love that suckers her into thinking that Joffrey is Mr. Right. Um, and I think, I think she has somewhat abandoned, partly learning from Littlefinger, that kind of romantic, naive idealism and has become more, maybe more cynical and certainly more pragmatic, I think, in her approach to politics. So we, we need to see that worked out. Um, whereas John hasn't bought into the chivalry thing. After all, he's never been to the South. He's never seen all these people prancing around on, on charges. Um, and he, his idea of loyalty is a quite nuanced one. He wasn't loyal to the Night's Watch, which is what got him killed, after all. But he could see a bigger picture. And I think one of the really interesting things about John is the way that, along with the other younger generation, both the books and the show have been the kind of Bildungsroman, is the, the phrase I used just now. It's been the story of their moral growth, and John's growth in particular, that he's come to from a kind of, I can't think of anything else to do, I'll join the Night's Watch and be like Uncle Benjen, into thinking really hard about who is them and who is us, what does it mean to be human, particularly out here in the north, um, who's going to be on the right side when the army of the dead come and has become more humane I think in that respect so I think we'll have to see how Sansa's storyline pans out but I think she's she's learned a, a hard lesson and she hasn't yet got the power to put a new version of honor and loyalty into practice Thank you for coming out to speak today. A uh, bit of a different question, a bit uh -huh. of a philosophical twist. If you were to, I guess, synthesize a top three principles, guidelines, or nuggets of wisdom, if you will, that we could draw from the series or, a, or the book or the TV show as a whole, uh, what would they be? Top three nuggets of wisdom. Um, <laughs> don't ever trust Littlefinger, I think it would be one of them. Um, I think it would also be about, more, more seriously, about walls. Um, who, is on the, who belongs on this side of the wall and who belongs on the other side of the wall? Now, when I was talking about the, the, this topic in Berlin earlier in the year, I was reminding the audience there that when Martin invented the wall back in the early 1990s, the wall that everyone was thinking about was the recently fallen Berlin Wall, and we looked at some pictures of it. And since then, that wall has become really interestingly nuanced in different ways. When we first saw it, I think in 2011, we were probably thinking about um, the, the US-Mexican border a bit, but also the wall Israel-Palestine. Um, by last year, the wall to me living in Europe seemed very much the wall around fortress Europe, keeping out refugees. Um, Donald Trump has put it right back in the US again. So I think that question of who belongs inside and who belongs out is a really key one, both for the show for, and for the books and for us to think about. And as for a third nugget of wisdom, um, I think it would be something along the lines of don't cling too rigidly to any one ideology. Keep thinking about the basic principles of what your actions are going to be, and that will make you a moral person. And that's where, why we should never trust Littlefinger, and why John is usually, in the end, right about things, 
I'm not always so sure Daenerys is, but I think John probably is, and we should stick with him. Be a good point yes. to end. Oh, a fantastic um, set of questions. Thank you, audience, and, and Caroline. Thank you so much. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you.